0: Thank you Jordan for uh, leading us in worship and now we'll continue our worship by coming to the scriptures and seeing what the Lord has to say today through the epistle of 1st Timothy. We're going to continue in this ser- our series which we have begun a couple of weeks ago. So if you turn open your Bibles to 1st Timothy and we'll be looking at chapter 1 and commence reading at verse 7 and we'll be going right through to the end of verse 11 7 to 11 and this is what the word of God says we'll start at verse 5 for context sake but the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. Verse 8. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that law is not made for a righteous person But for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers for murderers, and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted." May God add a blessing to his word uh, this morning. Last week, for those who are here, we looked at verses 3 to 7, which highlighted the priority and purpose of biblical teaching. But this morning in our text, we see that Paul reminds Timothy of the priority and purpose of God's law. Paul addresses this matter because the law was being abused and misconstrued by false teachers who had taken up their teaching roles in a local church called Ephesus, which is in modern Turkey. And as we saw last week, Paul does not hold back from confronting these teachers and their false teaching by reminding Timothy that this was a problem in the church and he is the one who was going to have to deal with it because Timothy is the pastor of this church. You see, these men who had risen up amongst the church and the believers at Ephesus, they did not understand the law of God and we're promoting their false ideas about it, and we're putting forward their false ideas as being the very truth. That's what it says in the verse, end of verse 7, making confident assertions. So Paul in this next section leaves no wriggle room, can we say, for Timothy and for us today in regards to fully understanding the true purpose and priority of God's law. In verse 5 and 6, we saw last week that Paul contrasts the purpose and outcome of true biblical teaching. He contrasts that outcome and purpose with the purpose and outcome of false man-made teaching that was going down at Ephesus. And so there was a bit of contrast going down there. And so true biblical preaching or teaching, we found out, is all about edifying and building up the saints, It is all about edifying the people of God so that they don't simply know more things and know about stuff but that their lives would be transformed. Transformed from the inside out. That's what the idea here is. That's why he makes mention of having a pure heart. So the transformation of true biblical teaching is that from a pure heart made clean by the work of the Spirit of God through faith in Jesus Christ. That's what transformation really is. Because it's only on that basis, on that pure heart, from inside out transformation, that sinners like ourselves can be enabled to love as God commands us to love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith that's the kind of basis that our love needs to move from that is it's only true believers in Jesus Christ who are enabled to obey this greatest of all command of Jesus Christ and that is to love the Lord our God with all our being and also to love others and we have that in Matthew 22 verse 37 39 so you see folks to love in this manner to love in this kind of way is the the supreme expression of the grace of the Holy Spirit in our lives that's his work Paul says in 1st Corinthians 13 faith hope and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. You ever wondered why he said that? Because of this. You see, in heaven, because that's what Paul was always looking for, the ultimate end, run. Right? He always wanted to be in heaven, but knew that he was needed. And, but he wanted to be in heaven, which was far better. And so he pressed forward to reach the goal of his high calling, which was in glory. You see, in heaven, faith will be no more. It will give way to sight. Hope will be no more. Because in reality, before our eyes, we will have the Saviour. So faith and hope will disappear when we get to heaven. But you know what? something that remains? Love will be the eternal characteristic of every person in heaven. Love will go on. Love will remain. Perfect love will be that eternal characteristic of perfected saints in glory. And I'm hanging out for that day. So this is why love is the supreme expression of, of the work of the Spirit in the life of the believer. And that is all to do about, with our sanctification. This is the fruit of the Spirit. This is what the Spirit of God works on us day by day through different ways and means and through the Word of God. Galatians 6 tells us about that. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, etc. And that is why Paul is saying to Timothy in verse 5, that's the purpose, that's the goal of our teaching, is to love like this and we looked at agape love as to what that was but those false teachers they were not on course with this line of teaching were they all they produced the scripture tells us was fruitless discussion or I tagged it doctrinal wandering they were here there and everywhere tossed about with every wind and doctrine they were motivated by pride They wanted prestige and recognition on their portfolios. That was their priority and purpose. And we see this in verse 7. Wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. In other words, in their self-centered focus, they abuse the law of God by using it to pump their own egos, resulting in a huge amount of collateral damage in the assembly of God's people. So this begs the question, what is God's law really for? And how should we use it today for His glory? That's a good question, right? Well, hopefully I will answer these questions from the text using two main headings with some sub-points under them. The first main point is the law's true purpose is to bring about conviction of sin. We see this in verses 8 to 10. You know, so often in our modern churches today, so to say, we hear messages that have a totally different slant to that of great Bible teachers of a bygone era. Now, I'm not one who claims that everything that is old and everything back then was the best and the greatest. But in this area, I think it speaks for itself. Men like Spurgeon, Jonathan Edwards, Whitfield, and others not so well known What they did is they thundered out in their preaching. They thundered out against sin and preached about judgment and hell so as to strike terror into the hearts of the lost. That's what they did. They have often been derided and ridiculed as being old-fashioned and hellfire brimstone preachers the kind that we do not need today because they showed no compassion because we need compassion, not those kind of preachers for today. Back then and still some churches today, it was not so much a positive message of feel better about yourself because Jesus loves you and has an awesome plan for your life. We hear a lot of that today in our churches. It was rather because of your great sin, you're under God's wrath, and unless you repent and trust in Christ, you will spend eternity in hell. True Bible teachers plead with people, to flee to Christ for salvation. Like you would plead with people who are unaware, maybe, of their house that was burning down, and you would plead with them to get out, to flee, to escape for their lives before it's too late. In that kind of situation, folks, you would not casually rock up to them and make them comfortable and get them to sit down and then discuss the benefits of leaving their burning house. You wouldn't do that. That would be insane, right? No, with urgency, you would compel them based on knowledge and truth. You would compel them because their lives are in extreme danger. Folks, we live in a day when the church by and large has lulled its people into thinking that they can be casual toward the wrath of God and that their need of spiritual salvation is not desperate, and they can merely discuss this. Many do not understand, because of sin, they are condemned already," John tells us in his gospel. and by God are under his righteous wrath. One of the main reasons for this apathy is that the law of God is not taught and is, or is not taught rightly but taught falsely as it was in ancient Ephesus. This is one of the reasons. Because of this many churches stand guilty of giving self-righteous contented people the false impression that the Christian faith is merely about a preferred choice of religious lifestyle. This should remind us that there is a proper way for the law of God to be understood and there's also an improper way as well. This brings us to our 1st subpoint: The improper use of God's law is trying to be right before God by keeping it. When we talk about the law of God here, I'm talking about the whole Pentateuch that's summed up in the Ten Commandments, the Decalogue. Now we're not too sure exactly what the false teachers in the ancient Ephesus were saying about the law, except that it was false, but we have a few ideas we see in verses one and one to seven. It seems that they were Jewish, these false teachers as they chose to use the law, so they must have had some Jewish background or Jewish upbringing. But most probably it had a pharisaical bent to their teaching. And what we mean by that is they taught the Old Testament law or what they knew of it just like the Pharisees did. And how did the Pharisees teach it? They taught that keeping the law of God was the means of salvation and eternal blessing and yet their own lives reeked with sin. No doubt some of the things they said were correct and may be beneficial. Just like many false teachers today, you go down to Kurong and read many books. As I mentioned names last week, the Joel Olsteens, the Joyce Myers, the Benny Hiddens, and you name them, many things they say may be correct, but the main thrust of the message it's against the true gospel of God. And I've got no qualms about naming those people, folks, because the Apostle Paul names people at the end of this chapter who are doing exactly the same things. That's the authority I have. So people who go public with false teaching open themselves up to public rebuke. And so the main thrust of their teaching back in Ephesus was, or as the Paul puts it in verse 3, strange doctrines, he calls it, was against the gospel of God and so Paul doesn't specifically tag the improper use here but he you know Paul was an expert in the improper use of the law himself you know big time before he was converted he improperly used the law he explains that when he wrote to the Philippian church in 3, verse 4 to 6, and also to the Galatians in verse chapter 1, verse 13 to 16. He was a guy who was zealous for the law, thinking that keeping the law and the Jewish traditions was the way to salvation and was a way for God to honor and bless him. But in the everyday life, who was Paul? He was a violent persecutor of the church, and he was far from righteous and pure in heart, that's what the law of God demands. He even testifies to this truth. In Romans chapter 3 verse 20, he says, By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight, for through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Folks, God's law can be compared, let me do this now, can be compared to, to a mirror. And that the purpose of a mirror is not to wash your face, Right? Its purpose is rather to show you that your face needs some work. Usually some soap and water work for a start. That'll be where it all begins. And the same goes for the law of God. It cannot and will not wash your sinful heart clean. It will not make anyone on this earth, ever has, ever will, by itself, make you right before God. It will not do that, no matter how hard you try and how good you are at keeping the commands of the law. It will never cleanse you of sin as God demands. It will never give you a pure heart and a and a and a good conscience and a sincere faith, in other words, the improper use of god's law is trying to keep it in order to make itself right before God and you know what? Can I suggest there or can I say, categorically, there are millions and millions and millions of people, religious people, doing exactly this today. And sad to say, their groups or their churches or their, or their sects, whether it be Christian or pagan, are promoting this very thing. Keeping the law can't do that because all we shall see is that no one is able to keep it perfectly. You know what? You know why no one can keep it perfectly? Because we're all naturally born sinners. We're we're sinners by birth and by practice. That's why we said Noah, he's not a Christian yet. Okay, he's not a Christian yet. He's a born sinner. He's a born lawbreaker, as you might hear, very soon when he gets a bit angry and his mother gives him a smack and he'll throw a patty. He'll throw a patty. Where did he learn that from? He didn't learn to throw a patty. It's natural. And soon he'd be saying no when his mother tells him to do something. Where did he learn that? He didn't learn it. It's natural. Born lawbreakers. So as we think about this, we say, well, what's the use of the law? It's useless then. What's the use of the law of God? If it doesn't do anything useful and good. Well, let's not think like that because God's law is not a waste of time. Because that's what Paul says here. He says in uh, verse 8, it is good when applied lawfully. You see that? The law of God is good when applied lawfully. Also in Romans 7 and 12, Paul again says, and the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. So there's nothing wrong with God's perfect holy law. The problem is with us and what we do with it. That's the real issue here that Paul is pointing out. And it's a real issue today. We will either use it wrongly as a mirror to watch ourselves before God, which is ridiculous, or we'll use it rightly and allow it to point out our desperate need for spiritual cleansing so that we might be made right before God. So we need to ask, if the law by itself gives no eternal benefit to the sinner who tries to keep it, what is, the true what is the true purpose of God's law? Okay, I'll, I'll another one. The proper use of God's law is submitting to its condemnation. You see that? The proper use of God's law is submitting to its condemnation. You see, when men, sinful men and women learn the, the righteous demands of God's law, what should happen and what is intended to happen is that they should be driven to despair because of a little word that has packs a whole lot of meaning, guilt, guilt, I got guilty last night, my wife had cooked me tea, served it up to me, and she had just done a whole lot of dishes that afternoon, and then we had tea, and I put my plate in the sink and took... Actually, I was really good. I picked up her plate and took it as well. And then I saw I was about to go to bed. She was still crafting. And then I got guilty. But what about those dishes there? Look what she's done for me. At least I can do is do those dishes and put them in the dishwasher. So, I, so guilt drove me. Guilt is a powerful thing. Guilt is a fantastic thing, you know. Believe me, guilt can even save marriages if you use it rightly. <laughs> and guilt before the righteous and holy standard of God's law is awesome too, because it can make you feel guilty and it will drive you to a right way of coming before God. And so we'll either use the law wrongly as a mirror to watch ourselves or we'll use it rightly to point out our desperate need for spiritual cleansing. Okay, and so the proper use of God's law is submitting to its condemnation. Romans 3 verse 19 says, it tells us that the law itself speaks to those who are under the law so that what? Every mouth, you get that? Every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become accountable for God. No one left out here folks. Whatever religion you belong to, and we've got people belonging to a few different religions here in this room, whatever religion belongs to, I don't care what it is, what group you belong to, what church you belong to, what denomination you belong to, or if you're agnostic, an atheist, or whatever, there's going to be a coming day that you will be accountable to what? To God's law, to God's standard. If it's not now in this day of grace when he offers you mercy and salvation, it will be in a coming day before him, and your mouth will be stopped you will have no protest because you will know guilty deserving all of God's wrath now this is the point this is the point like the person in the burning house who needs who heeds the warning and escape and like the person whose mirror reflects a dirty face and so he turns or she turns to soap and water the convicted sinner upon seeing God's holy standard against their own sinful state, they are to desperately flee to Christ who alone can save and forgive them of their sin. That's how it is. That's the gospel. That's the gospel. The law of God and its perfect requirements are so out of reach that beyond anything we can do, When we understand that, the convicted sinner will grasp hold of the good news that Jesus Christ bore the curse of the law on their behalf. That's the gospel. They will see that their own sin deserves God's wrath. That's what it is. In the light of God's holy standard, they'll go, whoa, I am way out of line. I am way below this. And the thing is, I can do nothing to get there and to meet it. And so what we'll do is we need to flee to our Lord Jesus Christ and in faith see him as our only Savior because he is the one who took upon himself my sin and your sin and he paid the full price, the penalty that we should have received. It's a wonderful story, the gospel. You know, I never get tired of it. That's what Galatians 3.24 tells us, right? The law has become Our tutor, our schoolmaster. And so you have the idea of a schoolmaster, what does he do? He usually starts off, or she usually starts off, from the unknown and leading us to the known. Is that right, Jordan? Yeah. And so the law is like a schoolmaster. It takes the sinner. Oh, wow. I didn't know that, but I am absolutely guilty before a holy and a righteous God. And then it points us to a way of escape to a saviour. See, the law is a schoolmaster to lead us to Christ so that we may be justified by faith. Isn't that wonderful? But as we note here in verse 9, Paul makes first a negative statement about the law's purpose, then a positive one. He states that the law in general, and more specifically the Mosaic law, is not made for righteous people. You know, I think, oh, wow, not made for righteous people. What is all that about? I believe here what Paul is doing is really having a dig. Paul was quite good at that, by the way, you know, as when we went through Corinthians. You know, he is often sarcastic in a very righteous way. And so he has a bit of a sanctified sarcasm coming out, I believe. He was having a dig at these self-righteous false teachers who believe that all the righteousness they need to be right before God, is by keeping the law. In other words, by doing what they need to do. And so that is, those who think that they are right before God through whatever they do, their religious practices or beliefs they hold to and perform. And so Paul's having a dig at these kind of people. You see, because as long as they think that, as long as they carry on with that, the law of God will be totally irrelevant to them. They won't even want to look at it. And those kind of self-righteous, unconvicted people, they will never be saved, by the way. Never be saved. You cannot be saved if you're not convicted of your sin. You go to the, the Gospel of John. What is the, what, when Jesus, before he ascended to heaven, he uh, is comforting his disciples. And he says, um, don't worry. I'll use this in my colloquial language. Don't worry, I'm sending someone else. And by the way, this is going to be his job. It's the Holy Spirit. He will convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come. And so, then Paul draws the attention from the law, what the law really is for in verses 9 and 10. For those who are lawless and rebellious... For for the ungodly and sinners, and for the unholy and profane. In other words, the purpose of the law is to show willing sinners their sin and need of salvation and need of a savior. Jesus himself said this. Remember in Mark chapter 2? He says, I did not come to save the righteous, but sinners. The law itself is good and right because it is God's law. But by itself, it is bad news for the sinner. Bad news. Because by itself, the law of God condemns everyone. No one's left out. Because all are sinners and fall short of his standard. Romans 3:23, And therefore, the law rightly sentences unbelieving, unrepentant sinners to hell. That's the bad news. That's true news. It's news we dare not miss out in the gospel. But we need to hang in there because in order to appreciate properly the good news that is here, we need to be truly convicted and convinced with the dreadfulness of the bad news first, right? In other words, you will not appreciate the good news if you don't appreciate the dire circumstances of the bad news. That's why I honestly believe we have many Christians and many professing Christians today uh, who just sort of float through life because they have no idea what God has saved them from. Well, they don't concern themselves with it. But before we get to this good news, we see that Paul details a whole list of sinful people and describing the kind of people who the law is for. We see this in verses 19, 9 and 10. But if you look at them closely, more closely, you will see that this list here has a structure that corresponds to the Ten Commandments that we studied a few months back. So this is not by accident either, by the way, but it's exactly as God intended this scripture to, section of Scripture to be. And so when we studied the Ten Commandments, I pointed out that the first table of the law was taken up with sins against God. The second table of the law was taken up with sins against one another, the community. And here in our text, we have the same structure, which links it, by the way, back to the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. The first three Couplets here, lawless and, re- lawless and rebellious, ungodly and sinners, and unholy and profane. These sins are co- that coincide with the first table of the law of sins against God. To be lawless has the idea of being a law unto oneself and having no commitment to any other standard which is plain and simple rebellion against God. The ungodly and sinners and the unholy and profane are the outcome of one who lives in denial of God's law. And as a result of that, that will have a flow-on effect as well. It will flow on in sinning towards others as described in the second list of sins. Now, you may see some terrible sins in there, are some there, and you think, oh, well, I'm I haven't been convicted by God's law. I'm not even a Christian, but I haven't committed those things. No, that's okay. It's okay. You, You don't get off the hook with that because as we look at the second list, what it is is probably describing, I would say, specifically the kind of sins that these false teachers back in Ephesus were hooked up to. But it also coincides with the sins against others as we see In the second table of the law. But here it is. But then Paul doesn't just leave it there. Then he adds something at the end of verse 10. And I hope you noted it. He makes sure that no sin or sinner is omitted. He says whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. You see that? Whatever else is contrary to sound teaching. Which is wrong thinking. Sinful words. Lying wrong motives, you name it. You know, It's just there, none of us get away. And so he reminds Timothy and us that whatever action in life that goes against sound teaching is a sin that needs to be forgiven and repented of. The Greek word for sound here, and sound teaching, is where we get the word hygiene from. So it kind of fits into what I'm talking about, having our sins cleansed. It's where we get the word hygiene from. And what it refers to here is something that is healthy and wholesome. So sound teaching has that idea behind it. In other words, Paul is advocating that anything a person might be engaged in or any teaching in the church that does not measure up to the truth of the apostles' doctrine, anything that is contrary to sound teaching... That is sound teaching that brings about spiritual cleansing and produces spiritual life and growth and health. Anything against that, that goes against that, is against the law of God and needs to submit to the law's convicting power. You got that? So that's super relative for us today, folks, even as Christians. Whether it be your business dealings or whether it be your marriages or proposed marriages or whether it be your friends or whether it be whatever the way you're bringing up your children we need to submit to the law of God and we need to turn to Christ for his grace in our lives that's who and what the law of God is for folks to bring about conviction of sin But that's the bad news. Now here in verse 11 is really, really the good news. The law's ultimate purpose is to point people to the gospel. In other words, the use of the law of God, if we use it properly and lawfully, is to use it according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God. That's what it says in verse 11. The law is, as I said, a necessary part of the gospel. The priority and the purpose of the law is to show men their sin, as we've been over It is then, it is there to expose sin and to show it up against God's holy standard. But the law by itself is bad news and it clearly tells us that we are lost sinners. But here is the good news. Here is the good news. The law condemns. And if it wasn't for the bad news as I said before, we would never have reason to come and receive the good news of Christ's redemption, the glorious gospel of God, our blessed God. This is the good news, folks. It's glorious because why? In the gospel, Jesus Christ, who died for lawbreakers just like ourselves, God has revealed His glory in the person of a Son. He has revealed His glory in that in Jesus Christ, God's perfection of holiness... His hatred of sin has been put on display. God cannot wink at sin. He cannot just sort of push it aside or bury his head in the sand over it. Sin must be dealt with. And such is his hatred of sin that he carries it out and his sin is poured out upon Jesus Christ and he fills, he becomes our substitute. Sin is dealt with and needs to be dealt with. We also see his perfect justice on display. Something else of his glory. In that Jesus Christ fully and willingly took the full force of God's wrath at Calvary for our sin. The Holy Lamb of God became our substitute in order that God's law against sin might be met and paid for in full. That's the good news, folks. That's the good news. That's the glorious gospel of the blessed God. And any gospel that ignores the priority and purpose of God's law against sin, can I say, is no gospel at all. No gospel at all. It's another gospel. It's strange doctrines. Now, as I close, let me ask you all, each and every one. Have you ever come under the conviction or do you come under the conviction before God's law, God's standard? Have you seen yourself as a guilty sinner and die in dire need of a Saviour? That's a real, pertinent, and I know very personal question. But you know what? It's the most important question of your entire life. Because if you do not see yourself as a sinner and flee to Christ by faith for salvation, you know what? I'm going to put it straight. You're on a road that will take you to an eternity in hell. I trust you will use God's law lawfully and respond in faith toward God through Jesus Christ, who alone can be your saviour this morning. Shall we pray? Our Father in heaven, we do give thanks this morning, again, for the opportunity to open your word. And Father, we live in such a mixed up world with so many doctrines, so many faiths, so many organisations of religious bent, Yet, Father, you have preserved your word. We thank you for the preservation of your word, the Holy Scriptures. We thank you that you have preserved it and handed it down from generation to generation to even to this very day we can open the Scriptures and read all that we need to know about you and about ourselves in order to escape the wrath of God. Well, Father, we thank you for the Savior. We thank you that we can look to one who is not only our escape hatch, but one who loves us and one who wants to pour out his love upon us. We thank you as children of God that we have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies in Christ Jesus. We thank you, Father, that it's not a case of we will come into eternal life, but right now every born-again believer has eternal life. And here now we're just pilgrims passing through where faith and hope will give way to reality. But our eternal characteristic will be love. We will love like we have never known to love before, to love you and to love one another. And so, Father, help us, we pray, to use your law lawfully. We pray for any here this morning who may not know you as Savior and Lord. Challenge them regenerate their hearts, we pray, cause them to see their sin and their need of a Savior before it's too late. So, Father, we give thanks in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.